0: Well, we've uh, we've covered uh, a little bit of ground in our study on relationships, and we will continue it tonight. This will be number four. So just in case you're keeping track and you haven't listened to four of them, then you've got some to go back and listen to because they all sort of build on one another. I do want to mention that last Wednesday night, I kind of ran out of time and I didn't get to really drill down and and talk about the importance of uh, dealing with any sexual sins that you might have in your life. We kind of hit on it, but I did fix out a handout. If you have not gotten that handout, I would um, recommend that you go to the back table and pick one up. It has in it the information about the hormones that I talked about very briefly uh, the bonding hormones, and also the cleansing prayer that uh, I talked about, to cleanse yourself of any any of those um, the debris left over from any of your se- any sexual sins that might have taken place in your life. Because we were talking about establishing God's kingdom in our lives, and uh, we've got to personally. We've got to personally establish God's kingdom in our personal lives before we can affect anybody else's life with the kingdom of God. And so, our series we've been calling it "Building God's Kingdom One Relationship at a Time." So, uh, relationships are very, 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 very important. And unless a person lives on a on an island in the middle by themselves in the middle of the ocean and there's no one else around, Um, that would be the only way you would not have a relationship. But the truth is, you would have a relationship with yourself, and maybe whatever's hanging around there in the animal life or whatever, because that's just the way it is. We interact with people here on this earth, and how many of you know that, um, You know, maybe you and God can have a wonderful relationship, but people can really mess it up. So, Father, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to share your word. We know how powerful your word is. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And your word is... uh, you send your word and it is not void it accomplishes what you send it to do and so tonight as i i sow the word in the hearts of these your people those that are here and those that are watching online we believe father that it will impregnate their lives and give them the ability to be an overcomer and And give them the ability to enjoy relationships. And so, Father, we just want to praise you for your precious holy word. It is your word that gives us life. Your word that corrects us. And we're glad for that, too. And Holy Spirit, we've been singing about you being here. We know you're here. You're in among us, but you're also in us. So Holy Spirit, I just ask you to give me utterance tonight. I receive from you what needs to be said in the way that it needs to be said. And thank you, Lord, for the utterance in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start tonight with our foundation scripture, which is in Galatians 5.14. Before this series is done, and hopefully you will have it memorized, because this uh, this is such a powerful scripture. So Galatians 5.14 says the whole law concerning human relationships is complied with in one precept. You shall love your neighbors as you do yourself. Now leave that up there for just a minute. So we've talked about the three, actually two, we've two components of this scripture. We've talked about loving God and how God loves us and He loves us first. That's where we get the love we need to love other people. But it also says that we love other people the way we love ourselves. And so our ability to love other people really hinges on our ability to love ourselves. So uh, I shared that message on Sunday morning about loving yourself. Last week, we started it here on Wednesday night, and then I finished it on Sunday morning. Loving ourselves is so important because you cannot be whole, you cannot be a whole person until you learn to love yourself, and if you don't love yourself, you're always going to try to be getting someone else to fill up your love cup, so um, I won't go back and, and uh, refresh your minds on that. You, if you didn't hear it, you can get the The tape or whatever, however you do it, podcasts that you do nowadays, you can watch it online. That's basically it. I I don't know. I think probably uh, DVDs are almost out. I mean, CDs are almost out now. So they're joining the morgue with all the cassettes and the eight tracks and all that other stuff. So I guess we're going to have to learn technology. There's just no way of getting around it. So I, I want to start tonight uh, with a picture. So if you put that picture up, um, Martha, I don't know if you recognize who these people are, but uh, this picture was taken in July on July the seventh, 1962, and uh, these two people. We're just kids. They look like it, don't they? Uh, I was 19, and Charlie was 20 at that time. And that day, you know, it was a, a magical day, just like all weddings are. It was very hot that day, so some people didn't think it was magical. And they didn't have the air conditioner on the church, but I didn't notice. I mean, it was just, you know, it was one of those days you'll never forget. And so, um, that was a good, every wedding, leave that up for just a little bit, every wedding begins a great relationship, supposedly. And, And couples that go into marriage, they have high hopes for happiness, and their expectations are through the roof. But the thing that I know for a fact because I was there that if you could unzip, could have unzipped me and looked on the inside of my, inside, inside me, you would see that my expectation was how my husband was going to make me happy. And I had all this list of things that, that would make me happy. And I had done extensive research on marriage up to this time. I had researched it through all the romantic novels that I had read. And the books that I, romantic books that I had read. And so I knew what to expect. And lo and behold, I, you know, I didn't know that probably Charlie had a list inside of him too. Because it did begin to come out later. But what is going on on the inside of people when they get into a relationship. Now, this is the closest relationship that we have here on the earth, is the husband and wife relationship. But it's every relationship. That on the inside, there is a list of how that other person is going to make me happy. And that is called the law of human obligations. So we're going to talk about that law tonight because um, we have been talking about the law of love. And that's what that scripture uh, was in Galatians 5.14 that we, we started with. It's talking about the law of love is the one concept or precept that governs all relationships. And so we've kind of been talking about how, how important that law of love is. But now we're going to come to the place where we take that law of love and we learn how to uh, implement it into our relationships on a practical level. So that's what we're starting with tonight. So we're going to talk about the law of human obligations. Uh, When people uh, enter into, especially the marriage relationship, and they have this expectation Now, this expectation that they have on the inside of them does include the law of love. But what it is, is the law that you should love me. That's the way it works. And so when I would try to implement the law of love in my husband's life, for instance, it ceases to be the law of love. It becomes the law of human obligations. When I try to enforce the law of love in somebody else's life. That switches it. Because the law of love is your law. Your law. You are expected to keep it. Not get somebody else to keep it. And put demands on other people to keep it. So uh, this law of human obligations... I think everybody has it. Um, it's just kind of part of our selfish nature. When we were, when we were born on this earth, we, our default is selfishness, which is exactly the opposite of love. You, you have to make an effort to walk in love. You actually don't have to make an effort to walk in selfishness. It comes easy. Just look at some of these little kids. Now, maybe you had perfect kids, but... Uh, Most generally, children are pretty self-centered. They, you know, it's all about them. And so uh, they have to be taught to love. And so um, this law of human obligations is built on the inside of us. And let me just kind of tell you where it comes from, the paradigm that it comes from, the thinking process that it comes from in a person's life. And so I jotted down some things that I've noticed. Don't ask me how I found it out, but this is the way um, I know that it works. You must always treat me the way I want to be treated. If you have that paradigm, uh, that's gonna out of that's gonna come this law of human obligations. You must always treat me the way I wanna be treated You must always be sensitive to my needs. You must never inconvenience me. You must do what I want when I want in the way I want it done. Now, those are just a few of the paradigm, the thought patterns that we have that creates this list of human obligations. So in order to change a relationship, then we definitely have to change our paradigm. So we're going to kind of talk about that tonight. Now, when we have this law, we think we know how someone else needs to act and and treat us. Then, uh, and we start putting demands on other people. It comes across like we are controlling. You ever heard that term? We've, heard, we've all met people that have a controlling personality. Well, that's because they have a law of human obligations on the inside of them that they want to put on somebody else. Now, when God made Adam and Eve, he gave them a commission. And he said, I want you to go and take dominion and rule and reign and, and replenish the earth. I mean, he gave them a job to do. And so they so a human has a natural tendency to want to dominate. But God intended that humans never dominate apart from him. And if they if they dominate with him, it's going to be according to his will and the kingdom of God and his nature. But because of sin, Then that got all twisted up. And now we, apart from God, people try to take dominion an improper way. So I have written down three ways that that people, the improper means of dominion. Three ways to do it is through intimidation, domination, and manipulation. Now these are... Relationship destroyers. Uh, just, just to give you a little definition of each one of them, the intimidation uh, is people use intimidation with by using anger, ill temper, bad moods, or harsh cutting speech. This is the way they try to intimidate the other person in the relationship. And so what they're basically saying, you do what I want you to do, or things are going to get really ugly. And so as a result, the other person, because they, want, they don't want to deal with the trauma of the anger and all this, the harshness and so on, then they become intimidated and dominated. And this is not a healthy relationship. Another one is domineering, which is um, the type of person that uses That is domineering is bossy, overbearing, and usually is extremely critical and picky. You know how hard it would be to live with someone like that. Maybe you know somebody like that. Hopefully, you don't. Hopefully, hopefully you're not that way. Then uh, the less obvious form is the manipulation. So some, way, uh, some of the ways that manipulation is used is through pouting, withdrawal of attention or affection. Where, you know, you just shut yourself off from another person. Where you make, make them feel guilty. And then this is one, I don't really want to mention it, but I'm going to mention it. Sometimes tears. Because we women use, you know, we, we use tears maybe. Hopefully not to manipulate, but we can Now, this is not the kind of tears that that you cry when you're hurt or uh, the kind of tears that you cry when you're going through the time of month or whatever. It's the calculated tears that is calculated to manipulate somebody. So these are just some improper ways of taking dominion in a relationship. And we know that God did not form relationships to have a domineering person and an intimidated person. He wanted relationships based on unconditional love. So uh, I want to look at 1 John 3, 4 just to pinpoint how God looks at us when we do not obey his law of love. Everyone who commits or practices sin is guilty of what? Lawlessness. Now, when we have our own law of human obligations, we are not living according to God's law. And so he calls it sin. We don't like to call some of the things sin, but it is sin. It's the breaking and the violating of God's law by transgression or neglect Being unrestrained and unregulated by his commands and his will. Leave that up there for just a minute. God's law, we've been talking about God's law of love. How, when you break it, when you break it, you probably are gonna get hurt because God knows what works in relationships. And so, uh, if you transgress or violate God's law by neglect, or transgression, uh, that you are unrestrained and unregulated by his commands and his will, then God calls it sin. In other words, when we are in a relationship, to walk in God's law takes restraint, and it takes regulating our lives according to the word of God. Is that fun? Probably not at first. The results are awesome, though. It's important that we regulate our lives and make a quality decision. There has to be restraint, especially if you have a tendency to use anger, harsh words, or being domineering. There has to be a regulating force in your life if you're not going to go by what comes easy, which is selfishness. So um, the problem, now This I want to just talk about the problem of trying to enforce your law on someone else. Have you ever had anybody try to enforce their law of obligations on you? Is it hard to keep that law? It's almost impossible to keep somebody else's law. And Paul talks about that in Romans the 7th chapter. He talks about, let's look at uh, Romans 7, 18 and 19. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot perform it. I have the intention and urge to do what is right, but no power to carry it out. See, he's talking, uh, well, let me just finish here. For I failed to practice the good deeds I desire to do, but the evil deeds that I do not desire to do are what I'm ever doing. And so he's saying, I, I really want to do what's right. He's talking about the law, actually, in the context. He's talking about keeping the law. And he says, you know, I want to do the do's, and I want to don't the don'ts, but as sure as I try to do the do's, I wind up don'ting them. I don't do it right, and vice versa. And then he goes on to say in uh, Romans 7, let's, let's look at this in the TPT, Romans seven twenty four and 25, in, okay. What an agonizing situation I'm in. Who has the power to rescue this miserable man from the unwelcome intruder of sin and death? I give all my thanks to God for his mighty power has finally provided a way through our Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one. So if left to myself, the flesh is aligned with the law of sin. But now my renewed mind is fixed on and submitted to God's righteousness. So what he's saying is this. I tried in my own strength to do the right thing. And to not do the wrong thing. But I failed every time. So basically what he's saying is any law that is enforced from the outside is impossible to keep. Then he said Jesus came. And in Hebrews 8, 10. Would you put that up there? Amplified. For this is a covenant. This is God speaking. This is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days saith the Lord. I will imprint my laws upon their minds, even upon their innermost thoughts and understanding, and engrave them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what Paul was saying was, when, when there's a law that you, tries to be enforced on you from the outside, no matter what it is, it's impossible to keep it. But when that law is on the inside then you can keep it because it's your law. So what he's saying was, now I can keep the law of God because I want to, not because I have to. And that's the way it is in a relationship. If you try to enforce your law upon someone else, it's impossible for them to, to keep that law. They, it's impossible It's because it's enforced from the outside and they cannot do it, even though though they try. They cannot do it until it's moved on the inside of them (coughs) and they begin to do it because they want to. They want to do what you want them to do. So that takes, that is like, that takes a heart change. So if you're in a relationship, let me just tell you this. No matter how you harp on somebody. No matter how guilty you try to make them feel. They will not be able to do what you want them to do. Until it's in their heart and they want to do it. And everything changes. So, we come to this question, if you're in a relationship and it's not a pleasant relationship and somebody in that relationship needs to change, what can you do about it? Is there nothing you can do about it? Because you can't put your law upon them, is there nothing you can do about it? You know, that would be a sad state. If there was nothing you could do about it. But thankfully, there is something that you can do about it, and it is God's way of change. So that's what I want to center in on in the next last few minutes that we have together, is how do you change someone you love? How do you change him? If you can't harp at them, how do you change them? So there is a wonderful law. That God has laid down in the Bible that is his way. So look at uh, Luke 6. We're going to look at Luke 6, 31 and 32. You will recognize this verse as the golden rule. And as you would like and desire that men would do to you, do exactly so to them. Just stop there for a minute. Go back to that first one. As you would like and desire that men would do to you, do exactly so to them. So what is it that you want someone to do in a relationship that you're in? Instead of harping at them, you sow the seed. You begin to, because the law that Paul is talking about, or that Jesus is talking about, is the law of sowing and reaping. So, in that person's life, what you want to receive from them. Is that easy? No. That takes the love of God in your heart to be able to do that. It takes the power of God in your life to do it. So, um, go ahead to verse 32. If you merely love those who love you... What quality of credit and thanks is that to you? For listen to this. For even the very sinners love their lovers, those who love them. So the most wicked sinner, this is what the Bible says, the most wicked sinner love people that love them. So anybody that's not being, dis, that is being disobedient to God is a sinner, and the Bible says that they will love the people that love them. Hmm. So we see this example in Esther, the book of Esther. I love this book. It's, it's my, one of my favorites because it's about a beauty contest, and, you know, we, we romantic people, we like beauty contests. and So this is kind of a romantic book in a way. And you know this story about, uh, actually, it starts out with uh, Queen Vastai disobeying the king. And so then he turns to his servants, or the people, his attendants, and he says, and the princes, the people that make kind of make the laws, and he says, what are we going to do with this woman? She won't come. And see, what he intended was, uh, in uh, Esther 111. He intended to show uh, the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to behold. Now, you would think any woman would love to flaunt her beauty, but she said no. And so these, these uh, princes and all of them, they begin to, they said, this is, this is, it's kind of funny when you read it, because they say, um, Well, if she gets by with saying no to the king, then our wives are going to get by with saying no to us. So we're going to make a law that all wives have to honor their husbands. So um, that was the first thing they had on their mind was, what about me? And then uh, they decided that they should just get rid of Ashtai, kick her out of the kingdom, and uh, take her crown away. So they told, the princess told the king, now what we need to do is to find someone better than Vashti. Uh, put up Esther 119, just so y'all can see that. So it says, if, you pl- if it pleases the king, let a royal command go forth from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Mede so that it may not be changed, that Vashti is to be divorced and come no more before King ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is what better than she so they were going to look around for someone better than vashti and you know how they gathered all these these beautiful virgins together and and uh, they were gonna each one of them was get going to get to spend a night with the king but before they spent the night with the king They was gonna have all these beauty treatments and everything for 12 months. It took them a year to get ready. Now the question, you know that Esther was taken as one of them. The question I would ask is, um, wonder what Esther was thinking during that 12 months? Here she was in this uh, beauty contest, so to speak, And she was going to have to be better than Vashti. And she was so beautiful that the king wanted to show her off. So it wasn't necessarily beauty that was going to win the day for her. It had to be something more than just beauty to be better than Vashti. So I like what, um, I don't know if any of you have read Tommy Tenney's book, uh, Hadassah which is another name for Esther. But it is such a good book. And in that book, he, said, uh, he wrote about Esther's thoughts. She said, God spoke to me about my challenges ahead. The first words of wisdom that came to me had to do with my upcoming night with the king. And God had said to her, it's not about you. It's about the king. Focus on him and she said I resolved in the months ahead to do just that so during those 12 months I believe that she began to learn to love a extremely wicked man he was very wicked this king was I mean he could have somebody beheaded at the drop of a hat and he wasn't known for his kindness and he certainly wasn't known for his love and so somewhere in that 12 months, I believe that she began to learn to love the king at a distance, of course. And so uh, in Esther 2, 17, put that up, please. We hear, we find this and the king loved Esther. Now stop there. We find out that he was looking for someone better than Vashti, but he found someone he could love. Now, how did a wicked man, an extremely wicked sinner, learn to love someone? By what we just read in Luke, the sixth chapter. Because every wicked sinner will love those who love them. So I believe that during that time, and I, I don't know how she showed it, but I mean He knew, I believe, that he experienced something from Esther that he had not experienced from anybody else. None of those other women. He experienced something that released on the inside of him the ability to love. And you know the story. The rest of the story. I mean, because of his love for Esther, it changed laws. It it, uh, redeemed a nation from death. And she got great authority before it was all done, said and done, over the whole kingdom. Does it really work that anybody that might be even a wicked sinner loves those that love them? I believe it does. I I jotted something down here uh, from my book, and I'm just going to read this to you. One of the biggest lies the devil will try to sell you is that somehow selfishness wins. He will attempt to persuade you to believe that it's all about you. That there is some merit in criticizing, fault-finding, nagging, and bitterness. He will convince you that if you just point out other people's faults, they will change. The lie embedded in that kind of thinking is the belief that if you can be mean enough, they will love you. Isn't that stupid? We know that we need to be loved. God made us that way. But we many times endeavor to get what we desperately need from others. However, when we do that, we most generally hit a dead end because when we demand love, we never seem to get it. Eventually, we have to face the fact that to be loved, we must become lovable. Now, you can put that on your refrigerator door. To be loved, you must become lovable. Selfish people are not lovable. When you regulate your life toward the gratification of your own needs, you are self-centered. A person who concentrates on themselves Remain severely immature. Therefore their ability to love. Continues to be stunted. However. If a person seeks to give. Give love. Rather than receive it. They become in the process. Lovable. And will certainly be loved in return. Now I learned this. Years ago. When uh, Charlie was going to Rhema And a lot of you heard this story, but I like to tell it. But I was working at a a manufacturing company called Cameron Corporation, and I was working directly under the bookkeeper, and I kind of was his secretary. So he would give me things, you know, different documents to type up, and I would, I began typing them up, and, and I paper clipped them together and took them to his office, and And pretty soon he called me back in and he said, um, he said, Margaret, and he waved that paper, Margaret, I don't want you to ever do this again. And I didn't know what I'd done wrong. And he said, do you see this? The little part of the paper clip is on top, not the big part. I said, Okay. I walked out of there thinking, picky, picky, picky. I was boiling. I thought, what is wrong with your paperclip policy? And I was really hot. And I went home, and I flung myself across the bed, and I began to cry, and I said, I just want to quit, God. I just I despise that man. He's just too picky. I can never please him. If I can't please him with a paperclip, how can I please him with anything else? Can I just quit and get another job, please? And I knew in my heart that God was not going to let me quit. And um, then I heard him say to me, Margaret, would you let me show you how I see that man. And, of course, I said yes. And he began to just unfold this man's life before me, how he, had, he was miserable, how he had, uh, God had actually called him into the ministry. He even told me that one time. And he he'd never followed through. He was a little emaci- emaciated chain smoker, just a cr- grouchy old man. And nobody liked him. He didn't have any friends. And as he was showing me this man, compassion started to rise up on the inside of me. And I began to feel something that I had not felt up until that time for that man. I felt compassion, and I really honestly loved him with the love of God. And the next day when I uh, went back, I don't know how he knew that I'd changed. I don't remember doing anything different. But from that day forth, he began to favor me. He gave me hours to work, extra hours to work so I could have more money. Anytime that a raise, uh, it was time for a raise, he would automatically give me a raise. And everybody told me, you'll never get a raise unless you go in and beg for it. And I said, well, I will never get a raise then because I will never go in and beg for it. And, and uh, they every single time he gave me a raise. And at the end, whenever we were getting ready to leave after Charlie was through with Rayma, uh he called me in and he said, Margaret, I know you haven't been here a whole, whole year, but I want to give you a, a bonus, a paid vacation bonus as though you had been here a whole year. So he, he, uh, my parting with that man was he gave me a bonus. And I realized, you know, I had stumbled onto something that worked in that situation and it would work in every situation. If you will love the unlovable, it opens up a resource on the inside of them that they can love you back. So uh, in the next few minutes that we have, I want to look at uh, Luke 6. Uh, I'm going to read it out of the Amplified and Luke 6:41 and 45 out of the Amplified and the Passion. So we're going to read it out of the Amplified verse. So why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice or consider the beam of timber that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, Allow me to take the speck that is in out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the beam that is in your own eye. You actor, pretender, hypocrite, take first take the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good, healthy tree that bears decayed worthless stale fruit, nor on the other hand does a decay. Worthless, sickly tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known and identified by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor is a cluster of grapes picked from a bramble bush. The upright, honorable, intrinsically good man, out of the good treasure stored in his heart, produces what is upright, honorable, and intrinsically good. But the evil man, out of the evil storehouse, Brings forth that which is depraved, wicked, and intrinsically evil. For out of the abundance or the overflow of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, while we, were, uh, we won't look at the passion right this minute. But while we were reading that, you will see that Jesus first starts talking about the, the specks and the beams. And then he moves right over into a botany, botany lesson about trees and, and fruit and stuff. And for a long time, I didn't understand how they coordinated. But the Lord began to show me that in order to get, be able to get a speck out of someone's eye, their heart has to change. The heart of a person must change before they can produce good fruit. So if there's something rotten in the heart there will be something stinking in the attitude so the real the real answer to any relationship problem that you would have is the heart of the person you're having trouble with it's their heart it's not their you, their behavior comes from their heart so how can a heart change can you change the heart of a person? No. The heart of a person is beyond your touch. Except through what we just talked about. The sowing and reaping. But in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, It says. Uh, For man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. That's just the last part of that verse. The Lord looks on the heart. And then verse 2. Proverbs 21.1, would you turn there, uh, please? The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, as, all, as are the watercourses. He turns it whichever way he wills. So if anybody's heart is going to turn, God's going to have to turn it. So, so what we are facing when we're in a relationship that's not the best... We need God to be involved. We must have God to be involved. The Lord gave me this word during this time that I was learning all this. And he said this. Your voice is only a human voice that carries with it no power to make changes. It only produces condemnation. My voice is an eternal one filled with creative power. It has the ability to produce faith, which is the only source of change. My voice produces revelation and consequently growth. So let me just summarize that. When I speak and I try to make changes, unless unless I'm under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, then that's different. When there's a pastor or a minister or someone standing up and speaking, then the Holy Spirit is there to change change. The heart. But in a relationship, like in the relationship, uh, in our marriage relationship, I tried to change Charlie. I got really, really frustrated. It did not work. Because every time I would think that I was speaking the truth, what he needed to do to change... He would, he would receive it as though I was attacking him. And that's really what a human voice comes across, condemnation. But when I begin to implement what we've been studying about tonight, it became easier for him to change. And you know, it was vice versa. I needed change desperately. That's why that whole book was written the Healthy Relationship book, because that was my journey. I learned all of this, not from a counselor. I learned it from the Holy Spirit, working it out, one one precept at a time. But I can tell you it's worth it to do things God's way. God truly has a way that is an unforced rhythm of grace. It's something that the Holy Spirit can institute in a relationship. And so if in your relationships, if you recognize that you have an internal list of how that person needs to treat you, tear it up. So I, I, I wrote it down this way. Determine. This is, this is the purpose. This is what you can set your sights on. Determined to live your lives meeting the needs of others and looking out for their interest instead of your own, believing that all the while God will take care of your interests, being fully convinced that what you sow, you will surely reap. That's a goal that you can set for your life. And at the end of this series, you're going to find that we're going to combine all of this that I will have taught into a relationship commitment where you commit to do these certain things that will change a relationship and change you in the process because we have to purpose to live regulated and restrained by God's will. And that's not always easy. But I'll tell you, the first step is always to make a determination. And I remember the first time that I implemented this in my marriage. I was uh, making the bed one morning. And I was thinking, oh, I am so tired of making the bed. You'd think that he would make the bed once in a while. And I was starting to get in self-pity, starting to get offended. Because he never made the bed. And I remembered what I had learned. The law of human obligations. Am I gonna release him from making having to make me happy? See, that's what it is. It's releasing the other person from ever having to make you happy. You get your happiness somewhere else, from God, not from them. And so I had already released him from making me happy. And so that day, I made a decision. I thought, you know what? If he never makes the bed, I'm not going to get upset. It's not going to bother me. I'm just going to keep on doing it. Do you know that the last probably five years before pastor went to heaven, he made the bed every single day. I hardly ever made it. And I never asked him to. I never one time asked him to. But I did tell him one day, Honey, I want you to know this. I don't tell you every time you make the bed how much I appreciate it. But I do notice and I appreciate it every time you make the bed. So he just kept making the bed. So... Um, If you have a a law, let's just tear it up and let's just uh, release every person from making us happy. Happiness is a choice. You can choose to be happy in every situation if you want to. You don't have to have things perfect and you don't have to live with a perfect person. You can still love even if they're not perfect. It has been our honor to offer this message today. If you would like to partner with us as we continue to bring the Word of God, we would ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Victor Center with a financial donation. You may do so today via the online giving portal at VictorCenter.org. Thank you.